Hello and welcome back to the How Not Podcast, hosted by me, Luke Manning. And me, Kim McCoy. And if you missed part one, stop. Stop right now. Go back and find part one. There'll be a test at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I got scared for a minute there. <laughs> I was like, shit, what, what are we getting tested on? No, I'm not getting tested, you're getting tested. So go and listen to part one. We are thrilled today to be joined by the very, very delightful and wonderful Adam Jeans. And we spoke about... Pride, specifically Pride in London, in our last episode, and all um, things during the 90s through Pride in London, which was really, really beautiful to hear about. And now we're going to continue our conversation with Adam. So strap in, get a cup of tea, order a stiff drink, and get ready. So, yeah, so I um, went in the gestation period of this podcast. We made a list, didn't we, of the people that we want to talk about. Yeah. And the issues that we wanted to talk about. Um, and Derek was on that list. From the start. From the start. Yeah. And then one day, Adam, you posted a photo on Facebook. One of the canonization photographs of you in a, in a habit. And I thought, oh, there is a connection here. And so that then we kind of saved Derek for a while, haven't we? Yeah. To to make for this. Yeah, for this yeah. very purpose. Yeah. Um, and so maybe a good place to start is for you, Adam, to explain what was happening in that picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explain yourself. <laughs> Why were you wearing a habit? Uh, well, I mean, the the the, the lovely to have you here, by the way. Um. Um, the simple answer is that I was a sister of perpetual indulgence. Mm-hmm. Um, what you say is a sister of perpetual indulgence? Well, um, sisters of perpetual indulgence, it's a worldwide order of gay men and nuns who are dedicated to the promulgation of universal joy and the expiation of stigmatic guilt through public manifestation and habitual perpetration. Beautiful. So it's a... Um, activity basically centering on wearing a nun's habit and running around and being i think you would describe them as a good troublemaker yes. so the so, the, um, so. so it's a worldwide worldwide order i was a sister i became a sister in 1990 and you never technically leave although i i very very infrequently manifest as a sister now and I, I was, uh, and also the important the other thing that you have to remember is that sisters need to have a, a, a name. Mm-hmm. So I was Sister Sick Transit Gloria Swanson. <laughs> and we had, um, every, and sisters usually choose a name which is going to reflect their interests. So, ah. so you do have some quite interesting names. Some of which I suppose I can, on this very adult podcast, mention. Yes. Okay, let them begin. So we had Sister Cystitis of the Burning Bush. <laughs> Sister Jackoff, all trade, master of nuns. Yeah. Sister Mystic Smeg, a misfortune telling penis. Oh, and Crystal Balls, I think, was in there somewhere. Good. Brilliant. Uh, um, and we had. Uh, What's the Moses? Um, uh, Sister Moses of the Parting Cheeks. Brilliant. Gorgeous. Love yeah. Sister it. Roger, me senseless, but don't mess my hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a, always a, always an aspect to it. Get the right name. Yeah, yes. of course. Yeah. And um, uh, sister frigidity of the nocturnal emission. Amazing. So, good old um, sisters. They they um, started off in the states um, as a kind of community uh, rabble rousing fundraising type, and they were um, founded um, uh, San Francisco, I think, is the main home um, by a man. Uh, called Sister uh, Vicious Power Hungry Bitch, mm-hmm. <laughs> whose name was Ken Bunch. 
and um, cis dish, as we all knew it, um, uh, basically incorporated the sisters as a, as a company <laughs> in order to prevent anybody else from being a sister except the ones he wanted. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work. Um, there were uh, sister houses springing up all over, uh, yeah. including... In London, there was one sometime in the in the in the seventies. There's at least one sister still extant from that period, um, and uh, the, there was a big house in Sydney, Australia, and um, the London house is actually descended from the Sydney house. Okay, they are this, you know, this is this is this is the background, as it were, to the to the sister stuff, and the secret behind it all, because it's it looks silly and it probably is, but at the same time, it's actually deadly serious. It's fundamentally serious. It's basically saying that um, you should not uh, allow society to dictate who you are and to make you feel bad for not being, you know, conforming to whatever norm is permissible, etc., etc. It's not your problem, it's society's problem. So the sister perpetual indulgence, just like in the old days in the medieval times, the sisters would go, sisters or monks would go around, people would pay them and they would give them a piece of paper that was an indulgence saying, here you are, you're free of sin, thank you very much come back when you sin again uh -huh. um, and pay me and but the sisters of perpetual indulgence offer a perpetual indulgence free of charge to everybody all the time no problem at all you are free no sins no no guilt sister that's yeah. it, that's the mm. so throwing off guilt a very important aspect of it it's very powerful it's a very very powerful message for lgbt people especially in the 70s and 80s yes you know also still today um and um i always really felt that the sisters kind of saying, you know, this is the way we are. Um, this is how you should try and be. You know, we're not all perfect. Don't feel that you've got to conform. Um, and by wearing a habit, which is an extremely visible thing, you're basically saying to everybody else, why don't you wear your habits as well? Mm. Yes. Whatever your habits might be. Yes. Well, that's Amazing. brilliant. Wow. Wow. What a concept. I love it. I love it, I love it, I How love it. How often we talk about guilt and shame being yeah. such powerful oppressors. It's like I know. And and yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. I love it. So how did you find yourself becoming a sister? How does one... Well, you know, in the last episode we were talking a lot about the, the great political period that we were mm. living yes, through in, yes, 18, yes, you know, yes. in, in 89 and 90 and something like that. Well, I was part of that. So I was, I was in um, out, uh, Outrage, Direct Action, queer politics group which shared an office with with ACT UP which was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power London chapter who were dedicated to fighting for the rights of uh, people living with HIV and AIDS and they lived in this office in the, in the London Lesbian and Gay Centre which is no longer there it, the place was a complete pit and also the room was apparently two previous there had been previously two offices and they had taken down the dividing wall and there was like a gap in the carpet, so the carpet <laughs> didn't quite meet, and there was literally a line drawn between the two organisations <laughs> in the room. And one side would look at the other side, and the other side would look at the other side. There was no mixing. There was sort of like very interesting sort of a question about what their agendas were. So mm. outrage were trying not to get involved in HIV and AIDS politics because they wanted to concentrate on the rights, for example, of uh, queer people being arrested by the police for no reason at all other than they might have been cottaging or cruising mm. or something like that or doing you know, something that society apparently disapproved of. Yeah. So they wanted to focus on that. Um, and so there was like this tension. But the sisters were kind of a mix of people who looked across the room and went, oh, I like you, let's be friends. Yeah. So there was a bit of a crossbreed thing going on yeah. between the two organisations. 
and I think that probably started before um, Outrage did a did a um, kissing in uh, in um, Piccadilly Circus. So the idea was, if you kissed in the street, you would be arrested because it was an, it was a front to public morals, yes. uh-huh. and you'd be you know dragged off by the police. So the everybody, everybody in Outrage went down there and kissed in in Piccadilly Circus because it's got eros and that's the god male love and all that stuff. And out of the blue, out of the crowd, stepped you know, like a shining light, a um, sister of perpetual indulgence who was visiting London, in fact moved to London uh, from Sydney, Australia. And one of my friends, Kel Farshi, sort of had always known about the sisters, always wanted to be a sister, and said. Oh my God! Yeah. Are you a sister of perpetual indulgence? And he said, "Yes, I am. I am sister Ethel dreads the flashback from the Sydney House of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence." And it was like you know, love at first sight. And within, I think probably within about a month, there was about there was about ten of us. Yeah. Wow. Good hustle. <laughs> wow. Okay. Spreading. Yeah. Like a, any good disease. Exactly. It's brilliant. Like a good disease. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. So, in terms of the house developing, like how, I mean, in a month, I guess you would be in pretty, you know, close knit network. But what was what was it like? Would you organise to meet up? Would you be? Oh, yes, like, no. What was oh, the, yes. the plan? How did this, you? This, the visibility. So that there were a very political time in general with everything going on with um, the Gulf War. Yeah. So um, a lot of the gay pol- politics, queer politics that were going on, was very sort of internal in the sense that it was very isolated, uh, sort of. What's the word? You know, insular. Yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, but in fact, there was um, quite a number of um, young queer activists who were who were very switched on about, you know, class war and and um, all the other um, campaigns that were going on at the time, and, and particularly the anti-Gulf War stuff. And um, we also had this spectre in the background, um, which was uh, the coming um, criminal justice bill. Which would, which was going to like revolutionise as it had, as it did do, um, you know what people could do in groups and you know what was permissible and all that sort of thing. So, quite a number of the sisters, the nuns, were really into into that, and so they would they would basically put on a habit and go on a on a you know, stop the stop the war demo. Mm. Yeah, and sure. it's ironic that you know you get all these pictures of stop war demos. You'll always see at that time a sister somewhere yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. having a fag you know, <laughs> underneath a banner, which says. And we used to come up with back with placards that were sort of like you know, um, was it take men to bed, not to war? I think was amazing. That's a great one. And lay down your arms and surrender to mine. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And 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 it would be. I guess yeah, turning up to demonstrations and then there was definitely yeah yeah a and lot we, during the the kind of um, well the act up movement was a separate thing but a lot of like HIV awareness oh, and stuff totally as well, yeah, we yeah. were doing we were doing HIV community AIDS. care oh yes yes so we we had this I mean there was this turning up stuff thing was important I think first of all um, you had to we had to be a, we had to try and organise ourselves and we weren't terribly good at that but we did have meetings. Of the house, and we called them nunchions. So you would have a nuncheon, and at that nuncheon, it would be oh X Y Z organisation would like us to turn up to the opening of their new building, or there is this demonstration happening, or there's this this party going on. They want us to go to it. I mean, literally, it was like organising the social diary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A month ahead, and you'd be mates, and you'd get invited to appear on stage and give blessings and stuff like that. 
So one of those things that the sisters really were good at, um, sort of part of this promulgation of universal joy idea, is to create um, rituals that the queer community could engage in yeah. because they were excluded from the rituals of you know everybody else. Mm. So you know at that time, you have to remember, marriage was off, <laughs> off limits. You know, partnership rights were not there. If somebody died, you were not necessarily going to inherit. You know, right. so children were a question as well, and so on and so on and so on. So uh, the sisters invented things like, for example, uh, blessing blessing your house, blessing your flat. You move to a new flat. We'll give you a Latin blessing. So one of the other things we did was we used a lot of Polari. So Polari oh, was yeah. like, instead of instead of using Latin, we were using Polari. Uh-huh. So so um, whenever you um, started a um, uh, any kind of ritual, you would always welcome what we called the gathered faithful, who would be everybody who was not a sister, and we'd say how bona to you, Dolly old eeks, bona to you, and they would reply to you, bona, as in. Our friend uh, Brucey. <laughs> it does, I know now that this doesn't quite work. I've been watching Luca's face and he's going, I don't quite get I'm it. Trying to cork it. I'm trying to cork it. Can, Is can it like the, the nice to see you to see you now? Ah, Brucey. Bona, bona lovely, good to Varda, see your Dolly Old Eek. Bona to Varda, Dolly Old Eek. Varda to Bonia, to Bonia Varda. God, it's difficult, bona. isn't it? Bona to Varda. Polari's difficult. It's complicated. Even yeah. I got that. But anyway, so it's fascinating. Oh, I love it. Yeah, so so we spoke a lot in you know lallies and only polonies and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we made we made up all these r- rituals. So we we would marry people. I mean, you know, people yeah. would say, "Could you bless my relationship?" And we do that, and, and they'd have a party, and it would all be funny and, and fun. And now it all sounds very sort of insubstantial and a bit sort of you know frivolous and frothy. But I have to say that some people, and I and I, I think there was quite a lot of them really took it seriously well yeah i mean it doesn't sound frothy to me especially when you know how important rituals are to people's lives and when like you say you're excluded from a lot of rituals to create your own is an incredibly powerful thing indeed it's a super intimate sense of community like it's like you know visually and yeah, yeah. activism and everything yeah. so we were very much about you know, getting people together into the gathered faithful so we went off one day to um, Hampstead Heath and we consecrated Hampstead Heath to the queer community yeah. <laughs> you know things like that yeah um, which um, were always done with sort of like you know tongue in cheek and the si- and the sisters themselves I mean we I always felt that um, that we were really needed that people were sort of like saying Ooh, we're the sister. Well, will the sisters be there? You know, mm. They really wanted us to sort of exist, you know, kind of thing. And um, we were quite, quite delighted to be sort of like given loads of free drinks all the time, because that's what happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. You know, well, there were like other nights when you're sort of like trudging home on the night bus in in, um, in habit, and it's pissing with rain, and you're thinking to yourself, "This is really not much fun." Really. Yeah, I prefer to be in bed. But. Um, uh, there were the ups I, and downs of being a queer no. superstar. Well, I mean, exactly. You have to yeah. take it off with this we, 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 we became like that. And, they, and they, they're, very, they're very photogenic, so you can obviously photograph them. But the, but the key thing, I think, is that, that, that all the sisters had a reason for doing it. Mm-hmm. And there was, I, I always say there was like three types of sister. There was the ones which were the political ones, which is the one kind of I was. I was like a political one. So all these friends of mine from Outrage and that and stuff. And we were doing uh, campaigns and 
carrying banners. Then there was a, then there was the bunch who just loved dressing up as nuns. Yeah. And yeah. and and we were very plain nuns. We were the Australian version of nuns. So it's very plain, uh, tunic and uh, veil and everything like this. If you look at the Americans. Yeah, I was going to say I like, first yeah. came across the sisters yeah. from following Sister Roma. It was much more like full beat and like drag nun vibes. Yeah, there is there is a difference of opinion of uh, couture, right, and so on. But but the, but they there was those those nuns who just loved all the dressing up and, yeah. and all that uh, drag. Effectively, we also had uh, uh, female nuns who could become cardinals. Good. So there was like a whole you know, whole world there. And then there was a bunch of nuns which I never really understood, who had been um, somehow connected to the Catholic Church and had been like, you know, either monks or altar boys or had done so, or even read the Holy Orders and had sort of like rejected it, but then loved all the, you know, smoking That's handbag right. and bells wow. and and just loved being a nun. Yeah. And, and there's at least two of them who have left, stopped being nuns. One has gone back to being a Franciscan friar. And the other one is now a vicar in the United States of America for the MCC Church. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> that is complex. Yeah, I don't want to unpick that case. No thanks. But but they all they all found they all you know they were all our sisters basically. Yeah. What can we say? Yeah, they f- you uh, something within the sisterhood they find it within them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, utterly fabulous. And perhaps one of the the most vivid memories for you would have been this canonization that we're yeah. about to talk about. Yeah, so now of the image that you shared that I first saw, we've now covered half of the image. Okay. We've covered you in the habit. Now we understand that. Yeah. Now we have to understand why Derek Jarman is there. Okay. So, because, um, um, so Derek was one of the names I had to put down. Yeah. And so, um, it's kind of the list is a, a there's an interesting Venn diagram between the two of us where there was names that we'd both put down and then we both kind of... Introduced each other. To right, the, and that's yeah. the nice thing where we get to find out interesting people. And yeah. so you're... Um, tell me about your Derek Jarman. Well, again, what I guess Derek Jarman's one of these names that I've heard a lot of that crops up in different... that I guess exists in a Venn diagram of my interests as well, like knowing about queer history and the sisters of perpetual indulgence and in art and then you know british filmmakers and stuff and it's just you hear this name being branded around but i'd never properly immersed myself in Derek jarman's work until you know it got brought up that it might come up in the podcast and then more recently knew that we were coming here and and someone that i have a huge amount of kind of admiration for and and have loved kind of diving into to his work but yeah not someone that i've know a lot about actually yeah. i'm kind of at the start of that of that journey and which it's is quite nice, nice we're on location aren't we because derek's cottage is not yeah. so far away that's right yeah um and i first came across it yeah by why why a friend of mine him? gave me modern nature to read right. um i think partly because i i really love to read people's journals and, and people's kind yeah. of reflections Especially artists. Yeah, like. exactly. Um, and there's some really amazing ones. There's um, one called Daybook by Anne Truitt, who's a sculptor, who is a kind of book that I go back to time and time again. And so I read Modern Nature and I just found it in- 
incredibly calming. There's like the never has the setting, the location of Prospect Cottage in the gardens existed so clearly in my head before I'd ever seen it because of the way that Derek describes what's in the garden and building it and putting it together. There's a really interesting, again, it's not a book where, that tries to sum up everything from cradle to grave. It's just a little, a little opening of a door and you get a little peek inside a part of his life, a really interesting part of his life. And then as the people that were kind of in orbit around him and then someone else completely separately then sent me one of the scenes from one of the one of his films and uh, and it's nice when that happens isn't it where a couple of people reference yeah you begin to marry up join some dots yeah um and so yeah so then when i saw when i saw that picture that was a very interesting marriage of lots of different worlds for me (laughs) um um what about your before the canonization who was your derek jarman my Derek Jarman would have been Sebastiani uh-huh. and uh, Jubilee. Yeah. Mm. Um, and these were both films. Both that films that he made, and um, the sort of the decisive one, I think, was the Edward the Second film. Which yeah. Made, um, which includes in it a riot scene, and he he was uh, one of the things people don't know about Derek is he was very very closely associated with Outrage. Mm-hmm. And he was actually secretly giving them money. He was, he was funding them. Mm-hmm. And he invited them to be part of the um, this riot scene that was going on in the film. So at one point, Edward II's boyfriend is sent away and then there's a riot or something. I can't, I, I can't remember the story. Um, but he invited this, them to be in that riot scene and stage effectively a, a, an outrage demo. Okay. And he asked the sisters to be involved in that as well. And while, we're there, while the sisters were on set, I'm not in that film, but but the sisters who were there were on set. It, somebody said, or their sisters said, we think Derek should be a saint. And that the idea of sainthood is that you saint somebody while they are alive. Yeah. So that it is celebrated rather than something that happens to them when they're dead. And I have to say that we knew that he was very ill. So sure. we knew that we had to do it soon, soon. rather than later. And yeah. you know, we'd only been sisters for about a year. Nobody, I mean, we had no idea how you canonise somebody. Sure. But this was, a, this was obviously a ritual which we mm. could use. And in fact, there is you know, rituals of canonisation in other, in other houses of the sisters. And, it, you know, it was, a, it, was a very, it was a very sort of spur-of-the-moment thing. Uh-huh. But we decided that's what we were going to do. And then we needed to make it work. And, of course, somebody mentioned it to him and he just loved the idea. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. yeah. And so, okay, so then from that point, that idea, how do you end up with Derek in gold robes on the <laughs> beach <laughs> so, with a banana? I don't know. I mean, the, the ceremony itself um, was was written by Sister Frigidity of Nocturnal Mission, okay. whose other name is Ian Lucas. Um, Ian Lucas is actually a playwright and a... And a, and a, and a, and a a, a queer thinker and and he and several other sort of like quite interesting people in the mid 90s were really writing the history of queer politics for um, a publication by Castle's publisher there's this fantastic list I think it's about 30 40 titles of books written about queer politics published by Castle's written by people who were actually carrying out 
the activism at the time. Sure. And it is just a great little time capsule. I don't think it's ever really been given the kind of notice or credit that it, that it deserves as a sort of a historical record mm -hmm. of all of this. And he was one of those. And he also, um, going further back, was a big fan like me of Round the Horn. So we all loved Julian and Sandy and we were all doing Polari and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a Polari service <laughs> for the canonisation of Derek. I'll give you a bit of it, actually. This is quite, this is quite fun. This is actually the original canonisation. Incredible. Which has got written all over it. It said, um, uh, where's it like saying, in here, where is it? It's there. Uh, we're now getting to the colonel. It says, Sissies and Omis and Polonies <laughs> gathered faithful. We're now getting to the colonel, the nub, the very thrust of why we're gathered together here today at Derek's Bona Bijou Latte. The reason being that Desi, bless his little heart face, is very dear to our heart. Look at him, his little lallies trembling with anticipation, heart of gold, feet of lead, knob of butter. <laughs> So perhaps we could all take a little time to reach out and touch, to handle for a moment Desi's collective parts, so we can now gather round, so now gather round to have a laying on of hands, to join together with Desi's, te with Desi's temple, gather round, sissies, Omi and Polonies, reach out and touch our beloved Desi, and if you can't reach his collective parts, perhaps you could reach out and touch somebody else's. <laughs> Brilliant. So there's this big picture of, of us all crowding round the throne. As it yeah. Were. He's sitting there with his gold lame gown on, which is actually a, a, which is a prop from Edward II. It was mm. worn by Edward II when Gaveston comes back. It was actually designed by Sandy Powell, she of many Oscars, um, who worked for, for Derek. And she was there, actually, the canonisation. And, and he sits in the chair and we all lay our hands on him. And this is the, the image, as it were, of the... Of the of the whole thing, um, which uh, many years later somebody said to me, "That's a very powerful image." Yeah. It's incredible. It is. That's the, the, the iconic image. That you're putting image. your hands on a on a, a human being with HIV. Absolutely. Yeah, very openly with you and know. Not, not something that was in our mind at all at no. that moment. <laughs> but I think though, I've, even hearing you read that is incredibly emotional. What you said before about um, wanting to make someone a saint while they're living so they're celebrated in life. Yeah. I think that's something that we really don't mm. always get right. I think it's incredibly powerful that, that Derek was so ill. You knew you there was knew an urgency. Dying, yeah. There's that image where he has his he's like his face up to the sky and his eyes are closed. He looks incredibly serene and happy. And it, it just it it just it's like a beautiful like you were saying before, some of this stuff might seem like kind of everyone's just having a laugh and it's all a bit flippant but actually incredibly powerful that stuff um, far, we, we're so guilty of not celebrating people in life mm. and one of the, the gifts I guess of someone like Derek who, who knew he was dying mm. and who, who other people knew he was very ill mm. as well meant that he could curate his, mm. his own mm. passing yeah, totally he was in complete control of it really yeah um, what I'd say about him um, is that he was a fantastic uh, filmmaker and a really, you know, his, his, his political thinking was absolutely spot on. Mm. And he was also, I would say I'd place him on the gay liberation side as opposed to the gay assimilation side mm -hmm. of, of that um, time. And he wasn't very impressed by uh, Ian McKellen getting a knighthood and going to have tea with John Major to mm. discuss queer politics. That was not all gay politics. He wasn't really impressed by that. No. 
Um, I don't know whether anybody ever offered him one, I doubt it. But, you know, he, he was not being honoured in the way that others were, mm-hmm. who were, you know, clearly in favour. Yes. And so one of the motivations was, well, if, we, if, if Ian McKellen can be a sir, then we can make him a saint. Absolutely. And um, um, I, I think he was a sort of... Um, he was also motivated by a very clear aesthetic about what he was trying to do in his films and his art and his garden as well. I mean, and that was really coming across. And you could describe that also as being a queer, a queer eye. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's something perhaps is. I mean, obviously in the films it is, but when you look at his garden, even I mean, it's sort of something other, other about it, a bit sort of weird and sort of on, on off another planet kind of thing. Know. Mm. And the fact that he would choose, I mean, he, I think he grew up around that area, so he knew the area, but moving back to Dungeness, I mean, if you've, if you've been there, yeah. you know, there's not much there. No, it's <laughs> a very stark cottage. landscape, isn't it? Totally. It's like, it's a very, you were, you were talking about this in the car. Yeah, there Did was you a, listen to a I listened to a it? talk, yeah, about, <clears throat> about modern nature specifically, and, and um, Philip, someone was talking about, you know, you know, nature is queer, nature is fluid, and 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 there's this beautiful parallel between you know, Derek and the the very plants that existed at Dungeonesque and those kind of spiky plants managing to thrive in a hostile <laughs> environment, you know, and that's kind of he kind of personified that energy, and it's really beautiful to think about it like that. Thinking, I was just thinking about reading <clears throat> Modern Nature. What we we were talking as we came down was about there is a lot, obviously. It's well documented that Derek Jarman was deeply into horticulture and plants from yeah, a really yeah, young yeah. age, and 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 some of modern nature, well, a lot of modern nature, is him discussing what he's planting and where he's putting what and what can survive in that. Yeah, it's very planty language, isn't it? And <laughs> I, I had those similar books. My granddad was a really keen, like uh, he he always had a really beautiful garden and would give me these books, and and so I guess when as I'm reading modern nature, I. I can see the books. I can I can feel them. I can see the kind of plates of plants, and then and maybe part of the reason I found so much joy in that book is that you I'd be there, so I can I can kind of imagine being in my grandparents' house and looking at those plates, and then on the next page he's talking about cruising in Hampstead Heath, and yeah. suddenly we're somewhere completely different, yeah. which is like a really beautiful like it it just kind of shakes things a little bit to remember the the kind of whole world. It's really easy to, to put these things in, in little boxes. Mm. And so for me, that was like a real meeting of two different worlds, that talking about plants and then having this whole other kind of... Which is why I really love the book, because it isn't just, I'm going to keep a diary of all my plants I'm planting. But it isn't just, I'm going to keep a diary of everything I'm doing. It's like, he, it, it doesn't feel full. It just feels like a series of photographs almost. of, mm. of You know, there's sometimes there's people visiting and... But it's never comprehensive. Well, I think it's so. I mean, also, something else about it. He, he was a visual artist, so when he plants a garden, he's got an incredible visual image yeah. of what it wants, what he, the effect that he wants to have happen. Yeah. And you really get a sense of space. Absolutely. And yeah. when, I met recently met the gardener at Prospect Cottage, <laughs> who, you know, he said when he arrived because uh, Derek had died, then his uh, partner had been very ill for and busy for a while. The plant, the garden, was just a mess. Yeah. But he had cut back something like eighty percent of everything, and it's still quite, you know, lush mm. as a garden in yeah. a way which it wasn't when I was down there. You know, thirty years ago. This other thing we have to say is that it is thirty years ago yes. in September, the next month, in fact, since since we canonised Derek Jarman on the on the beach at Dungeness. And then and now. 
There's a new film. There's a film. Yeah. I mean, it's just astonishing that people still care about it. Really. <laughs> care about, you know, care enough to care about that, but also care enough to find me yes. and the other sisters it's who brilliant. did the canonization in order to get them to kind of like, you know, help design the design the thing and, and all the rest of it. So it's, it's been a very funny experience. So how did that come about? Tell me about so, the film. So um, uh, uh, there's a filmmaker called uh, Marco Alessi who makes really lovely short films, um, queer filmmaker, and he wanted to tell a story um, which has Derek Jarman in the story. I mean, I think it's really showing how much Jarman means to younger artists and creatives. Mm. Um, again, something that's not really been, spe- been spoken about very much. I think there was sort sure. of those of us who drew, grew up with him, we liked him. The generation that came after us were probably like, yeah, it's all right. But yeah. then there's like this like rediscovery. Re- renaissance yeah, of, yeah. of yeah. Yeah. now, you know. So I think that's great. But anyway, so Marco wants to tell this story, which is a beautiful story of sort of like two time zones, a flashback sequence to the canonization and a, and a now where something very painful has happened. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the characters remembers the canonization. So he creates, in I have to say, the most extraordinary detail everything about the day we got, we got the photographs so he had the pictures he obviously interviewed us he took the the script of the canonization which has now become the film script that we're seeing he he cast people in our roles who look a bit like us <laughs> yeah and he found someone who's who, can, who absolutely looks like Derek Jarman but then he even went to the extent of you know he got hold of Sandy Powell who had made the original gold lame robe and said could you make another one please yeah. And she said, yeah, problem, no problem. In fact, she came as the creative uh, advisor to the project. Because you said Derek's buried in, in, De- Derek in the original buried. one. Yeah, yeah he's Derek, Derek was buried in the original one as a saint, which I think is beautiful. Um, and uh, she, she, she completely came on board with all of that. He found things that, in the photographs, there is, for example, a big inflatable yellow banana, mm-hmm. which used to be in our kitchen. And on the morning of going down to Dungeness that day, we thought, oh, we need things to put on the on the altar in front of Derek. You know, oh, take the banana. Okay. So we just grabbed it. And of course, when I arrived at the film shoot, there is an orange Amazing. inflatable banana. <laughs> you know, it's, it's things of that kind. Um, so there was, a, there was a lot of care and attention being done. And um, it was fascinating to watch it. You know how filming goes. It's sort of like lots of repetition. You're standing in the sun. I mean, this is the only thing that was different is that it was overcast when we did it and pretty windy. <laughs> when we filmed this this sequence this time, it was red hot sun burning our heads, and we're all like, "Oh my god, let's finish this thing!" You know, four hours later, we're still doing the same the same line. You know, and in, it was it was pretty hard going on that front. Yeah. Anyway, um, but but it is it is fascinating to watch. I had this huge flashback as I walked to the back of the cottage where we did the original canonization and looked at the setup with the nuns standing there and this guy that looked like Derek Jarman sitting in a chair, which looked exactly like the chair that we had with a, with a banana <laughs> and, and an altar in front of him. It was like being flashed back by about 30 years. But like an out-of-body experience because you're like looking at your skewer yeah. in that photo of yes, yes, yes. And what beautiful way to sort of honour someone who was such a beautiful kind of visual thinker than to be so detailed in your recreation yeah, of something. Exactly. That's a lovely way to... Yeah. So we were very, very... You know, we get... Sometimes we get approached by people who are like, sisters, yeah, come to that. Oh, no, 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 no. 
and we don't mm. Feels and um, but this time no definitely wasn't. there was care being done yeah and it was also very it's been very emotional because um, there were five sisters who who canonized Derek and um, there's only four of them alive because oh. um, sister Jack of all trade masters of no, masters of none um, which is Simon Kennett mm-hmm. my friend Simon who was himself also quite an excellent artist um, is no longer with us he died of AIDS and of AIDS related related illness in, in 97 okay. so he's always he was always there it was quite weird to be in this crowd of people doing this thing but you know we've also had lots of meetings about what we're going to do and you know it's the thing it's very weird to just be the four of us yeah. talking about it when it was obviously also Simon was very much part of it as well so that's been it's been and you know it's, it's a long time since he died but we all do feel still feel it mm. and it's, it's I think very fitting in that respect because in fact the film is about loss about death yeah. uh, that they're making yeah. there's a really powerful line in modern nature where Derek talks about um, kind of public events that are going to raise money for HIV and AIDS and says that he thinks there should be a very clear visual disclaimer that this we're doing this because the government refuses to support mm. and fund properly mm. this work and that's always stuck with me because that that could be that could be attributed to a lot of things now that activism and fundraising is done for things that really the government should do if it cared about its people and that just felt like that sort of summed him up as a thinker to me it was it, it felt very common sense but it's actually quite a radical idea in the world that he was in. Yeah, um, yeah that that kind of stays with me from that a lot. Yeah, I guess he, he was absolutely radical, not just in his art, but like the HIV <clears throat> diagnosis, like using, well, firstly, being so open about it, like straight away when a lot of people weren't, and it was very much, you know, he knew he was going to, dying and like using that in his art like so vividly like you know in in every medium using it as a way to just like talk about it as a process that was happening to him like to almost like in one stage like so intimate and so personal but also like kind of depersonalizing because he was just seeing it as like a thing that was happening and like writing about it it. and sometimes you forget that it was actually happening to him because you're like how could you do you know what I mean like how could you be so expressing it like in your art but yet it i don't know it's it's a really strange thing it's like it's so intimate and personal on one hand and beautiful and raw and heartbreaking but then also just like a, a process of definitely something it's, it's it's yeah quite amazing when you think about it like that mm. and if i get so if people have never seen prospect cottage in the garden how would you describe it so it's bleak but it's not grim I think it's a very strange part of the world. So it's a very flat shingle bed, mm-hmm. literally next to Dungeness Power Station, Dungeness B, um, which I think is now decommissioned, and they're just trying to find a way of getting rid of it. But um, the so that so that and there's lots and lots of these fishermen's cottages. So basically, uh-huh. they are fishermen's huts, and um, there's quite a bit of fishing still going on there because um, we had to keep a little bit quiet while they were doing the filming because there are fishermen who fish. You know, um, a funny time in the night 
and then are sleeping during the day. Right. And we were asleep at that moment, and we needed to sort of keep it down a bit. But um, Shut up, your Pilates. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's people making funny sounds outside, and I'm trying to sleep. So, um, so there's, there's that experience. And then there's this very interesting thing that is very difficult to tell the edge of the garden from the, from the shingle. You actually yeah. have to really look where you're walking in case you're walking into something that is like an artwork. Yeah. <laughs> Which I've, I, I mean, it's, it's often quite clear where it is and how it all fits together, but, but it sometimes can be a bit of a shock. And, the, and of course, the cottage itself um, is part of this Dungeness estate, which is, um, I think, a private estate, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, I think they were, there was a threat or a difficulty with the cottage that it was going to be lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sandy Powell, who um, won many an Oscar, went to the Oscar ceremonies this last time or two times ago when, it, when she was there for the. Uh, favor, I think she was. Yeah, yeah. With a white suit on and marker pens. And she went round all the famous people and got them to sign their name on the white suit and then auctioned the white suit in order to raise money to save Prospect Cottage. Wow. So she's there as well at this photo shoot. <laughs> and she's like the only other person who was at the same, the original. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the original canonisation. I remember hearing a interview actually on the Talk Art podcast. Oh yeah, with Maria Balshaw from Tate because she was involved also in the in, in like organising mm. to to save it. Um, I I guess the risk being that someone would just buy it and move in there and who knows pave yeah, over exactly. and do Quite, whatever they wanted. They could easily do that. Yeah. I mean the the the. the but basically, it's now been secured, so it's not yep. like a national monument. I have no doubt that it will become one. Yeah. But uh, not yet. Uh, not under this government. And and but but it's it, but it's secured, and mm. I think that's that's excellent. Also, there's an art project uh, attached to it as well. So there's a kind of residency thing going on, and all sorts mm. of other stuff, which is I think perfect. Yeah. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you were saying before when we were talking about you living here that it's quite a sort of creative. Part. Yeah, this is a very, it's a big, uh, uh, Folkestone, Dungeness, this whole coast, it's uh, also to Ashford as well, there's a there's a big film community here, mm. and a big animation community, there's a lot of musicians, um, I think they'll probably increase, I mean it's also here, there's a big visual arts community anyway, because we're in the middle of the Folkestone Triennial, which is like every three years, big arts, outdoor activity, um, Folkestone is itself, you know, love it or not, a kind of example of um, art, rege- art leading regeneration, uh-huh. and in the sense that the, you know the, the the regeneration of the of the town was well overdue because it lost its ferry when they opened the Channel Tunnel, which you can actually see from here if you mm. um, from this very uh, house that we are in. Um, when the Channel Tunnel opened, the, the whole town sort of faded, and mm. the the answer was a bit of um, investment from um, a, a rich patron. So the guy who owns Saga, the holiday company for older people, is based here in Folkestone. He sold the company, he had loads and loads of money, man named Roger Dehan, and he set up the Creative Foundation, which right. was you know, uh, funding itself basically by buying properties that were lying more or less unused, refurbing them and turning them into either homes or into, into businesses. Right. And that's how it's how it's grown up. So we have a large, thriving artistic community. The centre of the town has been regenerated as a creative quarter. Um, and there is this sort of like uh, 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 film, Screen South is based here. 
um, there's a number of art galleries that have sort of been put into into buildings that otherwise would just be there empty and nothing going on. Yeah, yeah. And the and this triennial, which happens every three years, which is now I think it's got the largest amount of public art in the street of any town in Europe or something wow. like that. It's like, so it's, it is it is an extraordinary place. Yeah. And it's now connected to London by a high speed line. Yes. So, and then brilliant. along the road you've got well, you've got Turner Contemporary in Margate and you've yeah. got Tracy Emmons Neck of the Woods. Yeah. You've got Hastings that has quite a lot of artists that, yeah. that live there as well. Yeah. And you get the beach. Yeah, yeah there's something around. about kind of nutty bohemian creatives and, and the sea. I think it's to do with lunar cycles. And yeah, the waves. yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's that's how, that's how desirable it is. But getting back to Derek, <laughs> you know, he 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 went out there. I think as kind of to find some kind of solace and and solution to things. Yeah. And and he was, you know, he was a great visual artist, and he and, you know, that garden is a visual artist garden. There's yes. no question about that. It was then very interesting, or at least tragic as well, when he lost his sight. And he started, you know, he then uses sound yeah. so beautifully as well. And sort of, a, he's a painter with sound with that, that film Blue and this mm. fantastic sort of insight into what it is like to live with AIDS at a crucial moment. You know, mm. in, 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 the, in the development of the disease, you know, there was that point, there was no really AZT, there was no sort of um, therapies that were really understood or known about. If they were, they were in the States and we didn't hear about them in the UK. And he was clearly accelerating towards a, a big decline. And as I say, he died in, in February. Was Blue, Blue was his last film? Is that right? I think was there's it one other afterwards. Right. I can't remember. But I mean, he's, you know, he's the most, I think it's probably the, mo the most significant of those films. Mm -hmm. Beautiful sound. And I remember when it came out, everybody was like going to see it in my generation. And we were sit sitting in the cinema with a blue screen glaring at you, all blubbing like mad. Sobbing, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's a, it is, um, and, and, it's, I think it's also, I mean, there's a bit of revenge here as well, which I'm pleased to see, is that he's got his own back. You know, because I remember um, Michael Parkinson on um, film 89 or whatever it was, it, reviewing Caravaggio uh -huh. and being utterly homophobic mm -hmm. and sure. revolting, revolting about it. And, you know, yeah. well, who's, la who's laughing now? Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, because we did an episode on George Michael and there's two kind of, I, I guess, a few years apart, two interviews where George Michael goes on Parkinson. The first of which, I'm not a big fan of Parkinson's approach no, to it. No. He is quite, he's, he's really quite ignorant. He's quite homophobic. He's asking questions that you wouldn't ask to anyone other than a gay man as a, someone who is not a gay man. And then the second one, he actually does apologise in a fashion, or at least <laughs> says... He's, he's clearly aware of how he, that he came across yeah. in not a very flattering light. So he was trying to save his arse a bit yeah. in the second one. <laughs> yeah. And of course, George Michael is, be, behaves beautifully and, yeah, beautifully. and sort of graci graciously toward this man. But yeah you're right there's a lovely bit of revenge there lovely that's revenge. great it's been taken back and yeah. it's now such a sort of significant part of most of many people's aesthetic yes work lives you know and i think actually films do stand up uh i agree i i, I think sebastiani is is timeless um and 
the Jubilee is it's got some fantastic music in it, and it's also got some really surprising people in it. You go, oh, it's Adam, it's Adam Ant. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Um, you know, and, and there's sort of some some excellent sort of crustiness to it. Yeah. Caravaggio also has these sort of moments where um, you know his 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 painterly eye is sort of really playing playing into it, and I and I think. Um, Edward II is such a such a little snippet of what queer politics was like in the 1990s, mm. transposed to the you know 1200s or whatever. Yeah. It was. yeah. <laughs> so it's a really sort of uh, fascinating little group of films that he made. Yeah. Which I think people are appreciating in a different way. Mm. Yeah. There were a, sm- a small number of people who really really loved him at the time, but I think probably it's fair to say he wasn't like mass appeal. Sure. <laughs> now it seems to be a lot more appeal. Well, I also think that aesthetic, like, I was just watching, like, some of the aesthetic of the films, that like, I think it's something that is a lot more appreciated now in terms of the way they were made, and, like, mm-hmm. even though they're not, like, big budget, and, like, you know, that was the whole point, like, he managed to get so much out of, like, having, not having, like, endless amounts of money to create, but, like, surrounded himself with, like, really creative people, like, and the actors he used and the composers, and, like, but the aesthetic of the way the film's used, you know, it's like really hip right now, I think, as well. So people are really looking back to mm. people like Derek Jarman and, and taking influence from that. They're beautifully shot and used and mm. edited and whatever, you know. Mm. There's that lovely interview with Tilda Swinton. Yeah, I mean, she just. Where yeah. she t- someone said, someone says that she was his muse and she says, no, Derek was his own muse. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah. And she said there was something lovely about it being low budget. You didn't have to ask anyone for permission. You could to, just you create. Don't have to get money, you just go and do, and that's definitely yeah. I think that's. But in order, you know, you need to live and breathe what you do. Yeah. For that, because you could be, sh- you know, seven years to make a film, you know, like shooting time and just going out days and days on end. You need to, you know, he clearly had a love for just. Well, he filming. was a structured man. He knew what he was doing. He was mm. very sharp. I mean, yeah. you know, Sebastiani is, um, you know, it's, it's basically what six naked men on the beach, and really, did, and he needed a beach didn't even need costumes either mm. you know and, and he did i think they got um who was it Lindsay? what's his name kemp to do the dance at the beginning mm-hmm. oh yeah and of course that is p- deliberately provocative because it involves you know satyr who then ejaculates <laughs> over the crowd and it was deliberate you know he of just course, wanted yeah. it to happen at the start of the film so he was just to say fuck off yeah that's yeah. right yeah and then you know it's the same similar thing is going on in in jubilee as well mm. and and you know he he did deliberately I think set out to pro- provoke yeah without question but then he also was very very careful that there is a, a excellent dramaturgy to Sebastiani which is it can't quite tell what's going on I mean I've recently rewatched it and it's like a different film right so I saw it you know years and years ago and then years and years ago before that I rewatched it again and I'm like god this is really clever this yeah. is like really, really clever stuff that's going on here. What is not being said by the characters is more important, actually, than what is being said by the characters and by their actions. Is is actually what their motivations are. That's really the interesting thing. It's a clever, clever film, really. Yeah. Whether that was deliberate or not, just pure by accident. I can't believe it was purely by accident. There must have been some structure to it. He must have thought, I can, I can see this. It's interesting because you know he said like there was a, a clip from a interview that he gave maybe to Radio 4 or something and 
you know, he was saying, well, I never know, you know, what, just like life, you know, you never really know what the day is going to bring. And, you know, when you start shooting, you never really know, you know, you can plan as much as you want, but it will never really go to plan. You know, say you want to shoot a sunny scene and it's raining, you just make it raining, you know. And and it's quite funny because you think, oh, wow, how changeable and free he was. But as you say, there must have always been a creative drive oh, there. He, he knew ex- what he, he wanted to achieve in his he was narrative. Clever, he was a clever man. You know, yeah. he he he, under, he worked with some big organisations and on big projects yeah. as an art director or as a creative director, and he was just he knew, you know, he understood that you had to do things within certain boundaries. Yes, yeah. yeah. And and you know, there has to be a, a direction to stuff if you're just formless. I yeah. mean, he really understands form. I mean, look at his garden, a fantastic form. Mm. Yeah. And the structure to things, carrying yeah, badges, pattern, and very that. structured film. You know. Yeah, there's the point where someone had mentioned that he'd come to them and said. That they'd figured out, he'd figured out that thirty-two sequences was what made yes, the film. Yes, yeah. So even in films that would appear to not have a kind of, kind of linear narrative, he would be thinking in these batches of thirty-two. Yeah. So you know, it was like there was a whole world behind his eyes, as it were, that was that was leading him to make the decisions yeah, that he made. I think I think Caravaggio is done in sort of like portrait sort of style. You know, this happens and that happens, like really clear scenes. Yeah, yeah. Happening. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I I think he was um he was very smart. And and he and he knew how to present himself as well. So I, you know, one of the things I always remember about turning up uh, at the at the cottage to canonise him is that he was already in the gold robe, sitting in his throne, <laughs> already waiting for us <laughs> with this entourage this sort of surrounding, place. waiting for us to arrive and make him a saint. Yeah, I mean, he, he was, knew what he was doing. He was very artful in existing. I think that not everyone is like that. He was definitely like that. I think the same thing about David Bowie. He was very yeah. artful in his existence. I think he managed to curate. Like I remember getting um, Black Star and listening to it all weekend, hearing that David had died, and thinking, "Oh, I get it." He knew exactly. I get it now. Where you were going to be? You, you were. That. You were. You knew what was happening there. Yeah. It's, it's really, really powerful stuff. And I think that's one of the markers of good art is that you can, like you say, you watch that film, big period of time in between. It still gives you new things. There's mm. new things to to find within it. That's what makes that's what makes things great. I think. Beautiful presence, even, you know, as you say, like the art and, and with you know if it's boys music or if it's Jamie's films, like you know that will still have been a resonating effect, a rippling effect. People coming back to it, people rediscovering it for the first time, the next time, you know, despite the being not being around the body going you know it's like the art still breathes right which is why so you were you were mentioning when you were showing us these photographs which we'll share some of but you'd said that there was some the photographer was kind of at points kind of following you around and taking pictures (laughs) and but it's so wonderful that they did that because now we have this stuff people can come back to you otherwise there'd be nothing so it's quite so i'm sure i give him a name check with dennis doran and he worked at um uh brighton uni i think and he just sort of said, oh, I'd like to take your photographs. Is that all right? He said, in fact, met us on a demo or something. Mm. And, you know, he was, you know, he's a nice man. And we went, okay, whatever. And he then suddenly was coming around to our houses and he was taking pictures, obviously, in our sort of living rooms and, um, and then on demonstrations and take us out. And he came down to Dungeness and took pictures of us down there as well. So it was, it was like this little snapshot of time. And we, you know, these pictures were... Well, they were a bit. They were like, I'm not quite sure why he was taking the photographs because they were just like really boring pictures of us sitting in chairs or looking yeah. out the window or something like this. And we were thinking, don't you want us to be doing something a bit more dramatic? Yeah. And 
And no, he said, I just want yeah. you to sort of just walk around being nuns, please. Sure. <laughs> so that's what he did. And there's this fantastic collection. They did actually form a exhibition that mm. went on tour. And then they were collected into a book, which is called Get the Rubber Habit, uh, for, uh, which was a fundraising book for Crusade. So mm-hmm. they have been published. And um, again, you know, great, um, great set of memories from the past. And, Absolutely. you know. Maybe inspirational for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think it's that way where you can never tell from the other side of the lens how things are going to transpire, <laughs> right? But looking back, what you've shown us today has been, yeah, really inspirational. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot... I mean, I, I was... I think there's... I mean, there are people now who would, who, who are nuns. So there's still, there's still nuns. There's nuns in Manchester. There's still young people who want to be nuns. Yeah, well, I was going to say, right, this so, is really funny for me because my gran, right, is... Is a nun. No, no, my gran is an auctioneer and um, found later in life a sprinkling of a daytime telly career, right? And she was on the road... Right, this is so bizarre, but she told me this recently. I saw her at home in Glasgow recently and we were talking about she doesn't do telly anymore and she was kind of reminiscing about weird and wonderful events that happened while she was on the road filming. And one of them was she was at Liverpool train station and a nun came running up to her, but it was a man dressed as a nun. Right, this is so weird. And she was like, this man dressed as a nun came running up to me and no, it wasn't in Liverpool, it was in fucking Manchester because the gay village. And so she was in Manchester at the train station. And this nun comes running up to her and says, Oh my God, oh my God, I need to manage. I love you, I love you, I love you. And she was like, Oh wow, like you're a nun. Like tell me, what do you do? And this nun had all these beautiful, beautiful badges and regalia and brooches on and apparently was inspired by my granny's love of the wee brooch, uh-huh. right? Because she's always going on about that in the telly, oh, a wee brooch. Um, and she was like, what are you doing? Oh, I go around the gay village handing it, talking about safe sex and handing out condoms. And I have just clocked that it was a fucking sister that she had met. And my gran is adored by a sister of perpetual indulgence. That is sick. That is amazing. Like, isn't that amazing? She just told me that story a few weeks ago. This and now all the dots are joining my head. It's totally consistent. The sisters love things like that. You know, gay, you know, daytime TV. Oh, yeah. No, my gran turned around to me like a year ago and was like, I don't know if you know Luca, but I am a gay icon. <laughs> And I was like, right, okay, fine. All right, granny. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to my granny. But yeah, that, that just warms my heart because I, I wrote amazing. that story in the notes on my phone. And I was like, I've got to remember this. This is a great story. Like my gran, you know, and this nun and handing out condoms in the gay village in Manchester. And, and then now we're here. <laughs> Full circle <laughs> moment. So there are, there are nuns in Manchester, nuns in Scotland. Lots of nuns mm. in Scotland, actually. Big still thriving. Not so many in London. Don't think there's actually a house in London anymore. Mm. So maybe there's people listening to this podcast who will immediately get in touch and we will start one again. Mm. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Well, that's a good place to stop, I think. Yeah, get get in touch if you want to join the house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you um, write to Sister Mary Officious to the point of being boring. <laughs> Care <sick>. of. <laughs> Gorgeous. I'll not. Okay. Adam, thank you so Thanks. much for this today. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. I'm just, I'm just yeah. delighted somebody wants to know. We all <laughs> want to know. We'll share some amazing pictures of the, the things that we've been shown today. Mm-hmm. And um, we're off to the seaside. Yeah, off for a paddle. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye.